Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Hi everybody, how are we today? Good, good. My name's Mike, if you don't know me. Um, I'm one of the, well, I serve as an elder here, which is a privilege. Um, and tonight I'm preaching from Isaiah 58. Um, I just wanted to start as a, as a quick caveat that I chose this passage before I had any idea about the 40 days of prayer and fasting. Um, so I didn't intend it to speak really about fasting, but I think you'll see some of the connections to that. Um, and I just want to note as well that this passage doesn't negate the practice of fasting food as a valuable exercise. So I hope you don't get that idea. <laughs> um, so let's begin. So for centuries, philosophers and other people with big brains have wrestled with what might constitute an ideal society, an ideal world, an ideal city, that kind of thing. And reading their ideas can be pretty hilarious, really. When I was 18, I tried I attempted to read Plato's Republic. I got about two pages in, slammed the book shut, and never returned because I didn't understand a single word. But I have heard that in that book, Plato imagines an ideal society, and it's pretty strange. Um, the number of inhabitants is limited to 5,000 people. Women and children are property, which is not very nice at all. And a class of governors who, we call, who are called the guardians they govern society. I thought it would be hilarious if we called SA government public servants guardians, um, but we don't, which is sad. But these people, as cool as that title is, they have to live apart from the rest of society in shared houses with shared children, which is really weird. So I think the point is that this probably sounds pretty close to our idea of a dystopia rather than a utopia. So I want us to reflect quickly on that idea. What might constitute your ideal place? What's your happy place? Maybe it's a place that's charged with formative childhood memories, for instance. Maybe it's a community rather than a physical place. Maybe it's this church, your family, a group of friends, a sports team. Or maybe it's even a piece of music that transports you somewhere else. And if you're really Christian, maybe it's a worship music piece. <laughs> so what qualities made this place so great for you? I imagine it probably felt caring, healthy, safe, welcoming, peaceful. And so, you know, coming up, there's a lot of change that's facing our community. A whole lot of new things, which is fantastic. And this change presents us with an opportunity to reflect um, and to consider the kind of place that God might want us to become as we move forward together. How can we become a more caring, healthy, safe, welcoming, peaceful place slash community? That's today the question that I want to think about together. Um, and Isaiah 58 can help guide our reflections. On one level, Isaiah 58 is about Judah's fasting practices, but it's also 
it also addresses other things too. And I think that one of the things it does is it compares and contrasts two communities. One that is pretty miserable and the other that's idyllic. And it does this to explore the kind of place that, God, that results when we follow God's way together. And despite our great distance from the time um, when the Israelites were walking on the earth, the insights of Isaiah 58 are relevant to our path together as a church. So firstly, can I get my first slide up? The passage opens by giving us a, a glimpse of Judah soon after their return from exile in Babylon. And what we find is a community that's fraying apart, that's disintegrating. And we'll explore the reasons why that is. Then we'll jump in my second point to the end of the passage, where Isaiah 58 gives Judah a series of conditional promises. Offer an incredible um, 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 it's a satisfying, flourishing, close to God kind of place that's also a wellspring for other people. And these amazing promises reveal God's intentions for Judah's life together. And then they also speak to the kind of place um, that God wants us to be together. And then finally, my, sli- my second slide there. Um, these promises, as I mentioned, are conditional. And these conditions describe how Judah can move between those places, from a fraying community to an ideal, idyllic place. And it offers us a way forward too. So firstly, let's jump to my first point. Let's explore this miserable kind of condition that Judah's in and the reasons for their struggles. So the situation around them is really bleak. The book of Isaiah addresses Judah over three historical time periods. Chapters 1 to 39 are addressed to Judah before the exile, and they've been, they're being really unfaithful to God. And he warns them of God's judgment in the form of an exile to a foreign land. Then chapters 40 to 55 are addressed to Judah at the end of that exile in Babylon. And it promises this glorious restoration to the land. And then finally, the chapters where we find ourselves today, 56 and 60 to 66, sorry, reflect the situation after Judah has returned from exile. And so Judah finds itself, in a sense, um, at a kind of precipice in its history, maybe a little bit like our community. Now, not all is well after Judah returns from the exile. And the community faces a whole range of difficult challenges as they seek to renew their community. It's a similar time, actually, that's explored in the books of Haggai, Zechariah, Nehemiah, and Ezra. And you might, might remember from our Nehemiah series kind of what was happening there. There's a small group of people. They're hoping to rebuild the temple. 
They're hoping to construct a wall around Jerusalem again. And they're hoping to sort of bring back their religious practices into people's lives. And we know from these books also of the different hardships that they faced at the time. So there's famine, there's failed crops, there's drought, there's internal strife, there's also external threat. And it's these situations that were likely what occasioned the fasting that we find in Isaiah 58. It was likely intended to supplicate God for help navigating their hardships. And so the hope, what, the hope, their hope was that God would notice their sincerity, their piety, and that he would intervene in the problems that they faced. And yet, verse 1 begins with God's command to announce not deliverance, but judgment for Judah's rebellion and sins, it says, and to do it loudly like a trumpet. And I imagine, I think, that this probably was a big surprise to them, to that community. If we read on, Judah sounds like a faithful place. In verse 2, it says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. How can we fault that? This, 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 are diligent. They, 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 after day. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not every, every month. They have a genuine, 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 genuine God. They want to, he's faithful to his commands. And they really, really seem to be sincere. They really seem to think or believe that they're doing God's will. And probably many of us would love to be more like that. But despite their commitment and their diligent um, piety, God isn't paying attention. They expected God to address the hardships that prompted their fasting, but he's unmoved. And so they complain in verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? How can a people seem so intent on serving God be called sinful and rebellious? Well, the answer unfolds in the second part of verse 3 to verse 4, as God, through the, through the prophet, responds to their questions. So the second half of verse 3 to 4 says, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. It's a bit like a utopian dystopia. There's a novel called The Giver. It also has a really bad movie adaptation. And in the book, like a lot of books, and in the book, the society pictured has eliminated all pain and fear and suffering. And so from the outset, it appears a bit like a utopia. It appears like a good place. But 
as the novel progresses, as it unfolds, society is, appear, is pictured to be more and more dystopian. Kind of find that out and that you progress in the novel. The novel. And so the, so the, so the, so the, in Judah, 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 they look faultless, 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 faultless. But, 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 thin veneer. Yeah. It quickly, quickly leads as the prophet exposes his underbelly. And so they're far, 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 as a means, a means, a means, a means, for, 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 please. One of the definitions of see, 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 the use, 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 incurvitus, I don't speak Latin. Curved on oneself is the translation. To say it, say it putting ourselves center of the universe, universe, universe is sin. Seems to be the crux, 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 crux in a and then the rest unfolds from that point. Other people, 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 objects for them to them to them to them. While 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 are off fasting, workers are being exploited to probably labouring even hard 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 hike up for 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 um the other people's rest. And when other people refuse to bend to their interests, they raise their fists. They're ready for a for a for a for a. For so what we see, 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 see is that they spend emptying themselves to demonstrate devotion, devotion, are actually overshadowed by the way they are, they are being, being others for their, for their gain. gain. And so the, and so that he has, he has full of, of action and F. Short, short, the blast of that, of that bit is, is, see, see. The light in his, light in his, but there's but the disc discussion between the society, society practices, practices that would ex, would ex, and, and the kindness of Edera, Edera, that they that they are other people, other and and is not not and here comes here comes Inga, yeah, and half and half fork and fork is you you got far far you do to do respect respect voice voice heard on high. The kind of cast I have chosen. People to humble themselves, themselves, themselves. Is it only for me, for me, for me, for me, and and for and cloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And I think it's pretty clear that the obvious answer is no. The community is practicing fasting. And wearing sackcloth to make it look even better. And they're doing that to try to build a relationship with God. Although it's a transactional relationship. They're trying to get. And the Lord ridicules that attempt. He says that they're just like reeds bobbing in the wind. Or in other words, you know, like a reed bobbing in the wind, that motion is just meaningless. Like there's no... A reed doesn't bob for any reason. They just do. In other words, those practices are meaningless to God. They empty out people for their own gain and ignore the suffering around them so that the rest and sorry, so that the rest of their diligent, um, disciplined, devoted practice means nothing. 
In other words, you don't have the relationship that you think you do with me. I think that's the point. So do you see? Isaiah 58 shows that there is a deep abiding connection between the way that Judah treats the least among them, the vulnerable, and the condition of their relationship with God. The way they are treating other people, particularly the oppressed, exposes a distance from God. And Tim Keller, the great preacher, he says it like this. He's paraphrasing. He says that the way that we treat the least, the vulnerable, is the grand symptom, the grand symptom of a connection with God, which is a great way of putting it. Jesus taught his disciples really similar things. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, it opens on a kind of judgment day scene in a parable. The saved and the lost are being separated out, the sheep and the goats. And Jesus tells the lost to depart from him. He says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. The lost say, when did we see you hungry? And finally, Jesus replies, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And so many claim to know God, claim to love him, claim to worship him, claim to follow his ways. But the the evidence, the grand symptom that we can provide of a real transformational connection with God is the way that we treat the least, the vulnerable, the poor. So that's the first community. And it's distant from God. It's on the edge of breaking apart. And I doubt it's anything like the kind of ideal place that you imagined as we began. Now, we shouldn't, before we move on, distance ourselves from Judah's situation. In our own time, we may actually be liable to these dangers as well. And it's interesting that Isaiah explores fasting as a practice because we also use that as a practice um, to, to seek a deeper connection with God, along with other things too, like church attendance, tithing, powerful worship, whatever it is. The danger is that these practices might make a church only appear like an ideal, faithful place. And don't get me wrong, they are fantastic things. Fantastic things that focus our relationship with God. But the key test to a truly faithful community is the extent to which it moves outward to consider other people and particularly the least and vulnerable. Now, we don't have to look far to see people who are vulnerable. At home or overseas, many people are exhausted, exploited, disempowered. What's our response? Is there the same balance and emphasis on alleviating their suffering in our programs as there is in Scripture? And there may be. It's just an important question that we should always be reflecting on. Because if we ignore these people, 
Isaiah's words are likely also to apply apply to us. Our community will fail to flourish. Whereas Jesus puts it, we'll be like white washed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones. Now, thankfully, it's not all doom and gloom in this passage. And the passage contains a hope for a second kind of community. Can we please have my next slide? And it's an idyllic place. In verses 8 and 9, and the second half of 10 to 12, the prophet makes two sets of conditional promises. And we'll explore those conditions to follow up and what, what they mean. So just put that on hold. But for now, the promises give us a picture of a completely restored community, that Judah, the, the kind of place that Judah could become. So firstly, verses 8 to 9, Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. And then the second half of 10 to 12 elaborate. Then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. And so we've got a range of promises that sound great. And both of these sets of promises begin with images of light to describe God's ideal for Judah. And this is a significant metaphor that's used throughout Isaiah and across Scripture. But one of the ways that it's used, it's used in a couple of ways. Here it's used to describe the purpose of God's people in the world. It draws on the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to all peoples. And so Judah was intent... Well, so... God intended that Judah would reflect the light of his mercy and grace to all who found themselves in darkness and despair by living in ways that mirrored his nature. Now, there's also a range of other images. We have images of healing and restoration. In verse 8, it's promised that their healing will spring up quickly. And the Hebrew word for healing that's used here is also used to describe flesh growing over an old wound. That's the kind of picture we've got. And interestingly, it's also used to describe the repair work in Nehemiah that's done to the wall. And then verse 12 elaborates on this idea of healing and restoration further. And it paints a picture of citywide renewal. There's going to be rebuilding, repair, restoration, and many generations will follow. Sounds like an architect or an engineer's dream to me because we're a little bit light on for work at the moment, but anyway. 
<laughs> we also have images of guidance, safety, and fulfillment in difficulties. In verse 8, we see that God's guidance goes before them and then that his presence provides protection behind them. And in verse 12, even when they encounter parched places, difficult circumstances, when they're dry, when everything around them is bleak, God will satisfy their needs, strengthen them, and nourish them with fresh waters, like a garden. And not only are they refreshed, but this watered garden is able to nurture whoever enters it. And then finally, this is like, did you ever have one of those Christmases where you got lots of presents and then your parents had like a bike or something hiding and they brought it out later? This is like that. There's even more and this is the best one yet. Pervading, pervading all of these images is God, is God, is God, is presence. It's made explicit in verse 9, which gives an incredible picture of rich communion, communion with God. As we saw them, Judah was, was connected to God. But, he, but the relationship between God and his pen has been transformed. And he's so close to them. To them. And I love the picture here. He's so close. close that the experience is like having a waiting servant. In verse 9, here I am, in the, in the Hebrew, is literally, behold me. And it's the expression Samuel uses, responds to God. What a great picture. picture. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful vision? vision? It sounds like an amazing place. It sounds like a place saturated with life, vitality, and harmony. I expect that it's probably a lot, lot closer to the place that you are to begin with. Before we go up, go up I just want to just mention that one of, the, one of the things that drew me to Isaiah 58 today were some of the words and pictures that came out of the team which Claire Jenkins headed up that was praying for the amalgamation process. And one was the hope that our community would become a beacon in Adelaide Hills, a place place that reflects the health, the light, the being that Jesus brings us, and is a warning, like a lighthouse found us. What what what? You can probably see the connections between that vision and the kind of community we've just described. The question is though, and what drew me to this passage? is how, how does this come about? And so we've compared two places. Firstly, we saw Judah as they are in their current state and the ideal is eluding them. It's a place full of oppression and strife and they're distant from God. And that's despite all these amazing practices that they're doing. And then we look at the second community and it's a place where everything's well again. What's the path between them and how can Judah traverse it? Well, remember, I said the promises were conditional and you probably noticed as we went over them that they all begin with thens, then this. Well, these thens follow ifs, i.e. if, then, this will happen. And exploring the ifs 
show us potentially a way forward. So verse 6 to 7 and the second half of 9 to the first half of 10 offer an explanation of how God, or sorry, how Judah can move from their current place to an ideal place. So verse 6, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And then verses 9 and 10, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of the finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the young, hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and the rest follows. And so in a surprise twist, God gives Israel, uh, Judah a new fasting practice. And this practice is their way forward. And it's a kind of strange fast. Look at verse 6. It involves loosing bonds of injustice, undoing straps of the yoke, letting the oppressed go free, and also breaking every yoke, not just loosing them. Or to put it positively, the ideal community arises when the people of God live out his call to do justice and to care for the vulnerable and weak. Now, I just want to mention that all of this hinges on our concept of justice. And currently in our world, this is a, a confusing topic, to say the least. There's a whole range of voices and ideas and connotations that are all related to the concept. And this can make it difficult for us to talk about it because we may be coming with a whole range of um, ideas about it and therefore we end up talking past each other. So we need to be aware when we come to this passage that people may mean very different things when they use the word. And I'm not going to wade into any of that today. It's way too complicated for me. But I just want to say that whatever view we come with, today let's just try to set it aside for now and let's try to hear these words in Isaiah 58 afresh and what they might have to say into all of that cacophony. So verses 7 and 10 give us examples of what this reimagined fast of doing justice and caring for the poor and oppressed, what that might actually involve. And we see it's about, I think, what we don't do, what we undo, and what we do do. <laughs> Can I just have my... <laughs> Sorry, I realised that was really bad English. Can I just have my last slide, please? <laughs> and so this reimagined, justice-orientated fast, it begins by ceasing to oppress the downtrodden. And I love the kind of irony of that. If Judah wants to stop doing something, it's great to stop eating. But they should also stop oppressing the poor. In verse 10, 
They're also called to end the pointing of the finger and the malicious talk, the speaking of evil. And I think this is about undressing the unfair, scornful attitudes that makes oppression possible to begin with, the ways that we see other people that make it possible to dehumanise them. And then the reimagine fasted goes even deeper than what we just don't do. God chooses a fast that actually involves decisive action also. It's also about what we undo. As we saw, it's about loosing, breaking, undoing and freeing. And God asked Judah to fast by undoing the results of their bad behaviour, the way that they've treated people. It's not enough just to stop it. You have to actually make those rights wrong. And I'll just give a quick example to illustrate this from our times. My wife, Ivy, works as a domestic violence social worker. And one of the things that is very difficult in that field is there's not enough housing around the place. And so women who escape domestic violence situations don't have anywhere to go. You see, that's a kind of a structure, I suppose, a wrong that needs to be righted. And then finally, we see the fast is also about what Judah does. It's about what you do. It's a fast that aims to satisfy the painful longings of an empty and broken people around us. It's about sharing their bread, providing the poor wanderer with shelter, and over and come and sorry, and covering the naked when we see them. And so the prophet is saying, what you forgo, what you give up, you can also give away. John Wesley wrote, what we give up in food can be converted into gifts to the poor. What we give up in time not spent eating can be converted into time spent relieving injustices. And these three actions, undoing, not doing, and doing, (laughs) they imply that our presence is required. We are to clothe the naked when we see them, which means immediately. But to immediately clothe the naked, you have to be among the vulnerable. We're to provide shelter. And in Hebrew, this is actually literally bringing the poor wanderer into your home. These actions are greater. They're greater than just giving away money. They involve real presence, real presence in people's lives. And of course, our money helps. It's great. Although probably not many of us have much money being young adults. (laughs) Money can buy food packs. It can buy school books. But our presence has an added power. Our presence is it's something we all have and so it's something we can all give. And presence does things like alleviate loneliness. It gives dignity to people. And it also crushes those kind of prejudiced attitudes towards the vulnerable. Because when you, re- when you know people who are struggling in life, you understand their story. 
You see where they're coming from. And so finally, verse 10, it further escalates all of this, what it means to do justice. The prophet urges Judah, spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. And the phrase, spend yourself, it's literally pour out your nefesh. That's the Hebrew word, nefesh. And it refers to your whole living being, all that you are. It's sometimes put as soul in um, the translations. And so the text doesn't just say to give food to the hungry, but to give one's whole being, one's whole self. The fast that God chooses for Judah is a determined commitment to give themselves away to fill up other people. And so that's what it means to act justly in Isaiah 58. It's not just an add-on. It's an essential element of true faithfulness to God's way. And it gives us a picture of how we can move from that miserable state and follow the path where we naturally begin to look like an ideal kind of place. And today we can't wriggle out of this passage by pretending it's just an Old Testament concern. God's concern for the poor, for the weak, the oppressed, all of that, it continues today. And it was most powerfully expressed in Jesus' life, teaching and ministry. And interestingly, in Luke 4, when Jesus is announcing his mission to the world, he applies verse 6 of this passage along with Isaiah 61 to announce his own mission. So he says in, in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And then this is the bit from our passage. To let the oppressed go free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he's in a synagogue and he just sits back down again, which is the ultimate mic drop in my opinion. So Jesus has come for the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, and he expects his community of disciples to do the same. And so applying these words of Isaiah 58 to our own lives, to our own situation, probably doesn't actually require that much imagination. It requires eyes to see what's broken and a willingness to begin the work of restoration but can I offer one idea? We are going to undertake 40 days of prayer and fasting together, which will be wonderful. Can I suggest that this is also an opportunity to follow Isaiah 58? Maybe it could in also involve for you a renewed and sustained commitment to, to fill up other people, to give up and to fill up. Maybe you could get involved with a ministry like More Street Dinners, which you've probably heard about. And if you're interested in that, come and chat to me. We're always looking for more people to get involved. Maybe you could invite someone over to your house for dinner this week or each week of those 40 days who doesn't usually get invited out for whatever reason. Maybe you need to give up something, like wearing a whole lot of fast fashion that's made by slaves overseas or something like that. Now, 
to finish up, Isaiah 58 asks a lot of us. Like Judah, I am always turning away from other people and shutting my own eyes to the misery and the brokenness that's around me. And that, I'm sure you, you grapple with that too. That, that prompts a more fundamental question for us. Where actually does this desire to help the poor even come from in the first place? Do you know that doing a lot of justice work and helping the poor and all of that, it can also be selfish? For instance, we might um, do a lot of justice kind of stuff because it looks good on our Instagram feed. Or, or doing justice might become just another tick box on our get to heaven list, another way to manipulate God. In other words, you can pour out for others for yourself. But the point of pouring yourself out isn't just to fill yourself up again. The passage is a, is a what it's doing is it's critiquing that kind of religion. That's exactly the empty observance that Judah was guilty of. So how do we get to the place where we do good for God's sake? For the poor's sake and not for our own sake. Maybe the band would like to come up. That'd be great. And can I just have my last slide, please? Look at the very end. Verses 13 to 14. If you call the Sabbath a delight, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to rise in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. Do you see what it's saying here? The Sabbath day is something that you do out of delight and then the rest will follow. So how can the Sabbath be a delight? Well, in Deuteronomy 5, 13 to 15, the seventh day is declared a Sabbath to the Lord and it's a day when everybody in the community rests and com- including the vulnerable, the servants, the animals, the foreigners. But it's also a day to remember. Verse 15 says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so the Sabbath is a delight because it's a day to remember God's work on their behalf. It's a reminder of their deliverance from Egypt. And once the Israelites had seen and experienced God's deliverance from oppression for themselves, they were to extend the same to others. It followed from there. It's God's work of deliverance on Judah's behalf that will motivate them to pour out for others. And so pouring out for others is not a works-based thing. We're not earning our salvation or anything like that. Those who have been freed will delight in the Lord and in turn will concern themselves with freeing other people. The grace you are shown is the grace that you share. And in the Exodus story, which is the subject that 
Judah is meant to be reflecting on um, during their Sabbath, we see a God who hears the cries of the oppressed and He responds. But God's care for the poor, for the vulnerable, is most ultimately and powerfully expressed in Jesus. Jesus doesn't just care for the poor and oppressed. He doesn't just empathise with them, but He becomes poor and oppressed. Jesus was born in a feed trough. He had no place to lay His head. He was unwelcome in His, home, in his hometown. He was dependent on others for financial support even. His trial and crucifixion were a complete miscarriage of justice. And so Jesus does what Judah couldn't do in Isaiah 58. He undertakes the most ultimate fast possible and He pours out His being with all of its, you know, grandiosity. And He becomes poor and oppressed. Why? To set us free from the yoke. And that's a delight. And it will change our hearts. And experiencing that profound grace will lead us outward to meet the needs of those hurting around us. So let's just pray to finish. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word, which reveals Your character and nature to us, Lord. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for His great act of deliverance that He undertook for us. Lord, we thank You that You became oppressed and poor for us. Lord, we pray that You would empower us and that Your your presence, Your transformational presence, which we all have, would transform us to be more like You each day. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. Please forgive us when we fail and please lead us onward and outward. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.